Well, as, uh, as Bob mentioned, this month we're shifting from the lessons about Paul and his pursuit of the believers to being pursued by the religious officials as he became a believer. And we're talking, uh, really, uh, our lessons are just from the missionary period of Paul's life. So depending on what our teachers are finding, it's just somewhere in that period of his life. Maybe it's a narrative. Um, so today's lesson, we're kind of building off of this a little bit. Uh, but I do have, when I do a lesson, I always have a section at the top where I just leave empty bullet points for things that didn't quite fit. Uh, so I just wanted to share a couple of those things. Um, Bob mentioned a little bit about unity. And uh, actually, Lily likes listening to classical music and dancing to it around the living room, especially she likes the percussion parts. Um, yeah. But so yesterday I was playing a whole bunch of John Philip Sousa music, which, of course, is kind of the patriotic musical standards uh, for the United States. And it struck me whenever I played uh, the Stars and Stripes Forever, the, the first recording or most popular work uh, that came up was a recording by the Royal Philharmonic. Which I thought was really, is that a sign of unity or time healing wounds that, uh, oh, the yeah, the British Royal Philharmonic is playing Stars and Stripes Forever very well, very grandly, and that I can listen to it and not be offended that they're the ones who are playing it. Um, but it just made me think, uh, I'm not going to cover it really too much in this lesson, but related to this, t to Paul's missionary journeys, if you read throughout his letters, you'll notice there are references to Paul um, talking about the famine and poverty that strikes the home church in Jerusalem. And uh, so these Gentile churches, which of course are made up of Jews and, uh, and Gentiles and all across the area, that have never even been to Jerusalem probably, um, Paul spends a significant portion of his missionary career over time always enlisting these churches to support their fellow believers back in Jerusalem. And so he's, all, he's fundraising, he's always talking about how much it, it hurts him to see them suffer, and he's gathering funds and literally taking the funds back to Jerusalem sometimes, which is a very dangerous thing to do, to be carrying bags of coins um, on a journey of hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, as far as we know, he never references that he had a uh, security detail or guards with him. So it's very real real danger that he undertook. Um, and also, it speaks a little bit, I heard one commentator was saying that it speaks a little bit about his, uh, the faith people had in him and his maybe charisma and his persuasiveness that this guy is able to show up and be like, hey, I'm that guy who used to persecute you. Give me some coins. You'll probably never see me again, but I'm going to take it. I, I promise you I'll take it back to Jerusalem and I'll give it to those people. <laughs> there, weren't, uh, there weren't all of the nonprofit uh, auditing and, and uh, certification groups then. So it's, it's just a really neat lesson in Paul carrying that in his spirit. I think it's somewhere like a decade that he spent of his missionary career always working on this and trying to get funds back to the church. Um, related to that, I mentioned the Jews living in other places. Uh, we mentioned um, kind of the inversion last week where Paul, um, whenever he was persecuting the believers, was leaving Jerusalem, going out to far-flung areas to hunt down Jewish people who had become believers, followers of Jesus, and dragging them back to Jerusalem. And we talked about how through the whole history of, of uh, Israel, all of the exiles, when the people were scattered and pushed across the world, so much of Jewish history was longing to come back to Jerusalem. And so the inversion here where 
in the interest of, of fighting God, even though they thought they were following God, they're actually dragging Jews back to Jerusalem when that's always the thing that Jews would have wanted. Um, kind of building on that inversion, if we think about the negative experience of those exiles when Jerusalem and Israel was defeated and those, those empires and rulers pushed the Jews all across the known world, um, it's, it seems like a negative. And there was always a great wound and grief and a desire to see Jerusalem rebuilt and see Israel reformed. But when Israel was rebuilt, when Jerusalem was rebuilt, there were still many Jewish people who remained where they were. Um, so when we get to the New Testament, there, is, there are Jewish people scattered all over the known world, and they are ethnically Jewish people, they are religiously Jewish people, but culturally they might be Persians, they might be Macedonians, they might be Greeks, they might be Roman, they might be in Turkey, they might be in all of the different regions covered by these former empires in the current Roman Empire. And so when the New Testament came and that pressure built in Jerusalem for the believers to scatter again, being exiled in the way that the Jewish people were, when these Jewish travelers, these followers of Jesus landed in a city like Antioch, they would have found Jewish people already there who shared their ethnicity, who shared their religion, at least the roots of their religion, but who culturally knew Antioch, who culturally knew the people around them. And it was this perfect preparation for the gospel to just multiply and spread across the world. And that's uh, when we talked in the Old Testament, we walked through the Bible, one of the big themes that I felt from the Old Testament was just that, that we cannot even fathom how God works on the time scale that he works. And so if I am a Jewish person <clears throat> exiled and scattered from my homeland, I might never see the fruit of that toil and that suffering in my lifetime, but it will come. And it may even, it'll come in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. Um, so today, I just want to draw a few comparisons. Um, since this story takes place, so much of Paul's interaction is interacting in the Roman Empire. Uh, we just want to talk a little bit about that to set the context in the stage. So the Roman Republic ended about 75 years before Paul's first missionary journey. So this republic built on laws and practices had kind of fallen apart and become the Roman Empire, ruled by a dictator. Um, and even though there was a period of peace after it, it was that transition from a republic to an empire. Um, at the time of Paul, the Roman Empire occupied about territory about half the size of the United States. So it was a vast empire. There were around 60 million residents uh, is, the, is the low number estimate. Some people say it could have been closer to 100 million residents that lived in territory controlled by the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire had central rule, but in most places they absorbed regions and let them continue practicing their own local laws as a way of enlist, uh, um, cutting off any chance of uh, rebellions and discontent. So they would let them, where possible, continue to practice their local laws um, they also did that with religion. They usually would take the gods of a local area and just absorb them into their pantheon of gods and just add it to the list of gods that were acceptable to the Roman Empire. We hear Paul talk about uh, how important the rule of law is and the fact that he's a citizen, which is a very, very small percentage of, re of those residents are citizens, that earned, earned him the right to actually be heard by a Roman court, to actually be heard by Caesar and not just a local magistrate. 
um, which is kind of a big part of the last portion of his missionary career. Rome um, had one primary language, and uh, legally, uh, most official documents were in Latin. Um, so across the whole empire, somebody, most people could converse in Latin or Greek um, in some way, so there was a common language uh, that bound them. Their army in the time period of Paul had probably around 300,000 soldiers spread across the empire. The tax code was bewildering. Um, so this is kind of a quote that I read. In its complicated system of direct and indirect taxes, sometimes they paid in cash, sometimes they had to pay in, in kind and materials. Taxes might be specific to a province or specific kinds of properties like fisheries or salt evaporation ponds, and they might only be in effect for a limited time. But all of that complexity was justified because of the need to maintain the military strength. The Roman gods, as they absorbed all these other gods, still had a few key gods that they worshipped. In a lot of ways, these gods really, these idols were ideals. So if Aphrodite was the god of lust and passion or fertility, actually half of the gods were gods of fertility. So having children was pretty important at the time. Um, but that meant that they practiced their worship by indulging in lustful behavior and, and sexual immorality. Um, the god of well, Mars, the god of war. Um, at that time, about the time of the Republic, his status had become elevated. War was kind of one of those big key things that uh, they were really, really keen on developing military strength and projecting it. Um, so it's not just the physical idols, it's even practicing those ideals. In the early empire, anyone who converted to Christianity could lose their status as an honorable station. So even if they were a person, we hear a couple accounts in Acts where there are honorable people of station in the Roman Empire who convert. And there's a very real cost that could come with that. They could lose their standing because Roman culture was built around serving the civilization and serving society. So there, was a, there were many rules and practices, and you were always watching out to make sure that you were doing what was acceptable for the community. Um, and so rejecting these gods... Um, it would have been okay to say Jesus is this new God we're adding to the pantheon. That probably would have been acceptable. Um, Jews had some special exemptions and carve-outs that allowed them to continue practicing things. They're kind of on the edge, you know, not working on the Sabbath, um, not really adopting the other gods. Was, it, was, it, was, it was kind of hit or miss. Sometimes they were in favor, sometimes they weren't. Um, they might have been able to slip Jesus in as this extra God from the Jewish sects, but the fact that it was the worshiping Jesus was all-consuming, and it meant you had to not just stop worshiping the other gods, but you had to stop doing the things you hear written about in the New Testament. You had to stop going to those temples. You had to stop practicing those ideals because they didn't align with the things Jesus taught. Um, and what we saw, um, worship of the gods was an in-kind type of worship. So it wasn't really having a faith in the God of Mars, and my faith in him would mean that I would be successful in battle. It was, what have I done for Mars? Have I offered sacrifices? Have I offered the right type of devotion and practice in the specifically proper format? If so, Mars might in turn support me when I go to battle. So in your community, if there are people in your community who stop serving, worshiping, offering allegiance to Mars or Aphrodite or Zeus or these other gods, well, they're compromising the success of your community. So you can see how the, the social fabric was all tied in with this, and the, the Jesus followers were a very real threat. 
Um, by not following those religious practices, their civic responsibilities were considered, uh, right, that they were no longer upholding them, um, and it set them up for the period where Christians were persecuted and martyred in the Roman Empire. So that sets the context. I think if you think of some of those things, a republic that became an empire, even the scale, the just the, the emphasis on war and the focus on some of those ideals don't sound too unfamiliar to us today. Even though the environment is different, a lot of those things still carry and have really been true in any empire that's ruled. Um, that's often been the focus. Violence to sustain the empire, things like sexual immorality and uh, entertainment and brutality to entertain the people so that they don't threaten the might of the empire um, have just been a constant standard. So the lesson we want to talk about today um, I think relates a little bit that we can apply some of those principles. It's, I don't think it's a stretch to make some of those comparisons to Rome. In the Old Testament story, the theme of an empire gaining power astonishing the world with its strength, and then proclaiming itself the culmination of human development was always followed by the revelation that that empire had underlying corruption and that it would ultimately descend into blatant evil and injustice. So like Israel, I think we in our world today can easily take up the call echoing in scripture in Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or in Isaiah chapter 2, 12 to 21, for the Lord of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning. He will punish the proud and mighty and bring down everything that is exalted. He will cut down the tall cedars of Lebanon and all the mighty oaks of Bashan. He will level all the high mountains and all the lofty hills. He will break down every high tower and every fortified wall. He will destroy all the great trading ships and every magnificent vessel. Human pride will be humbled and human arrogance will be brought down. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. Idols will completely disappear. When the Lord rises to shake the earth, his enemies will crawl into holes in the ground. They will hide in caves in the rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. On that day of judgment, they will abandon the gold and silver idols they've made for themselves to worship. They will leave their gods to the rodents and bats while they crawl away into caverns and hide among the jagged rocks in the cliffs. That sounds amazing. It doesn't take just, just a passing glance at headlines or an ear to the stories of the pain in this world to find ourselves like the disciples returning to Jesus asking, can we call fire down on their heads? <laughs> I can feel it when you read that. I want to say, bring on the day of the Lord. So after centuries of waiting and longing, and praying and waiting, when God stepped down from his glorious host to put on the dusty garments of men, Things did not quite play out the way that people had expected. You can hear the call in Isaiah's words. After so many generations steeped in the cultures of man, seeing and hearing how the real world worked outside of the synagogue, all of Israel, I think, can be forgiven for thinking that Jesus would pick up the world's tools, swords, gold, threats, power, and taking down Rome in a glorious battle of violence and victory. But Jesus didn't come to defeat Rome. Here's the hard lesson, I think, for us. If we had lived with the overwhelming majority of Romans in poverty and slavery, 
to hear that Jesus was not concerned to destroy, uh, in destroying the Roman government. If we were those Roman citizens to hear that Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer had arrived, but he wasn't interested in destroying the government that was enslaving us. That, that I, he was not going to demand that we're released from service to our masters. I wonder if we would have responded to his message any differently than so many of the zealous Jewish teachers. It would have been astonishing, disappointing. I'd pegged my whole life. I've been pegging my hope on that day. On, you know, what did Isaiah say? He'll break down every high tower. Human pride will be humbled. My master will be humbled. He's going to crawl under a rock and I'll be free. And Jesus said, no. We've been hearing that some of the um, writings in the New Testament say, if you're a slave, honor your master. I said, wait, what are, what are you talking about? What is, the, what is the Torah even about? I don't get this. I'm confused. Let's read Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Thinking about the fact that Jesus wasn't coming to fight Rome. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with your hand, their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of him. Jesus had come to deal with the root problem. And again, it's hard for us to accept or even consider when we see the world through our empire's eyes. But being physically enslaved to a human master is of almost no concern compared to being spiritually enslaved by the evil of the world, by being enslaved to our own broken humanity. Jesus tells his accuser here, starving is nothing. I live by the word of God. Listen to this moment where Jesus talks about this in Luke 22, 49 to 53. This is just before he was taken and captured for the whole um, story of his... uh, torture and crucifixion. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. I've often interpreted that question from Jesus as an admission of his meekness, that he was willing to be taken. But I think it might be even more than that. 
I think he may be implying the utter foolishness of the enemy still fighting this spiritual battle with physical clubs. The power Jesus carried in his spirit could never be threatened by the world's weapons. They brought swords to the most epic spiritual battle all of the cosmos would ever experience. Then he does tell them, this is your hour. It may seem like meekness, but he's permitting them to help him achieve ultimate victory over evil, even though they believed they were fighting against him. He wasn't about to destroy Rome in a brilliant military maneuver or a strategic action. He was about to conquer evil and its primary symptom, death, by actually dying. In this world, that doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. Well, Paul wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia during his first missionary journey, uh, maybe around the time he was at Antioch. Um, So listen how he begins his letter in Galatians 1, uh, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Deliver us from the present evil age. And Paul continues in Galatians to challenge the church to not fight to not view this fight on man's terms, but to whether they're powerful Romans or leaders of their traditions or laws. In Galatians 4, 8 through 12, he says, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves to the me- uh, once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you is for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. And then near the end of his letter, Paul identifies the single most powerful weapon to use in this spiritual battle. One that's more powerful than swords or society's threats. In Galatians 5, 13 through 14, he says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And then in 6, 2, he says, Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. Verse 10, Therefore, Whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. I can hear that echo knowing that he's concerned about the church in Jerusalem. He wants us to take care of each other. And so while they were working to identify the core message of the church, that is one topic that the apostles, I think, found easy agreement on. After all, Jesus himself said in John 13, So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In First Peter, he wrote in verse 22, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. 
In 1 John 3.16, we know that real, what real love is because Jesus gave up his love for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. So if we can make a connection, Jesus came carrying the promise of making a new world and a new humanity, arriving in human flesh during the Roman Empire and chose not to fight for its dissolution. Instead, he served the weak and poor and fought most strongly against his own religious leaders because this battle was a spiritual one. He ultimately won this battle, though the victory was unseen by the powers in place at the time, by giving up his life in love. Paul and his apostles continued this message, that though they would not condone the behavior of the empire, they were more concerned about the spiritual well-being of its residents. And that, def- and that defeating the empire of evil in this world could ultimately be achieved only by spirit-given love that serves in sacrifice and stands as a powerful light of contrast in this hour of darkness. Is that a lesson that I th- we can take to heart today? We started with Amos's promise of the day of the Lord, but here's the counterpoint in Amos 5, 18 through 19. He warned Israel not to long for the day of the Lord if they were actually on the wrong side of justice. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here? You have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. And that day you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. It's easy for us to view the world's problems through the world's lens and prescribe solutions using the world's tools. Is there a problem with the law? Well, then we should write a new law. Is there a problem with government corruption? Maybe we just need to find good prosecutors. Is there a problem with violence? Well, let's make sure we're ready to deliver even more powerful violence. Do you hear in the world today a reckless clamor for blood and war? War is glorified often as an end in itself. Do you hear the hungry call to see people thrown from power or cut off from their families or beaten for a cultural infraction? These things can't be fixed with laws or guns or speeches. We do long for the day of the Lord. We do want to see things put right. But let's not forget that the battle we're fighting cannot be seen with human eyes. And it cannot be won with human hands. Or social media. Love when it is hard. Love when it seems wrong. Love when it is foolish. The love Jesus has and shares with you washes away past sins, burns away desire for future sins, and bridges every societal, cultural, racial, economic, and physical gap between us. Can we love the church in Asia with the same passion and grief for their suffering that we love our traditions and the things we've grown comfortable with? Can we love our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who have to be quiet and not mention the name of Jesus aloud with the same burning passion for their safety as we do for our own comfort? Can we love the people around us the way Jesus loved us and the way Jesus loves them? If you doubt that you can love like that, well, just consider that Paul, who had zealously persecuted the early church, was actually able to give up his body in the same way that Christ did. 
because of the Spirit's love. During the first century, most people around the Mediterranean Sea lived in densely packed cities, all ruled by the Roman Empire. Each city was a diverse blend of cultures, ethnicities, and religions. And because of this, there were all sorts of temples for offering sacrifices to all sorts of gods, and each person had their own portfolio of gods that they gave their allegiance to. But in every city, you'd also find a minority group who wouldn't worship any gods but their own. The Israelites, also known as the Jews, they claimed that their God was the one true creator and king of the world. Now all these cities were connected by a network of roads built by the Roman Empire, and so it was easy to move around, to do business, and even spread new ideas. Now one person familiar with these roads was the Apostle Paul. He spent the second half of his life traveling from city to city, announcing that Israel's God had appointed a new king over the nations. This king wasn't like anyone who'd come before. Right. Most kings rule with aggression or power, but this new king rules with self-sacrifice and love. His name is Jesus, and Paul is his herald, who's inviting all people to live under this king's rule. The stories of Paul's travels and how people received this message, that's what the third part of Acts is all about. For some time, Paul's home base had been in the city of Antioch. And from there, he and his co-workers went out on three road trips, traveling by land and by sea to strategic cities throughout the empire. In each city, Paul's custom was to go first to the Jewish synagogue where his people gathered. He'd start teaching and showing how the Messianic king promised in the Hebrew scriptures is Jesus of Nazareth. And some believed this news, others didn't, and still others thought this message was so misleading and dangerous, they would incite riots to kick Paul out of town. And so that's when Paul would take to the bustling city marketplace. He would set up shop there to make and sell leather tents to cover his travel expenses. And here, Paul kept sharing the news about the risen King Jesus with anybody who would listen. He was often misunderstood as just promoting a new God. One time he prayed for a sick person, they were healed, and everyone around thought he must be a Greek God that came down to visit them. But Paul insisted there's only one true God and he was his servant. This message often stirred up opposition and more riots, and he got beaten, even thrown in jail. Why such a strong reaction? Well, the worship of the gods held together Roman culture. They believed the gods kept their cities safe, and the temple worship of the gods was a huge part of their economy. Paul wasn't just adding Jesus as a new god to the list, he was saying all other gods are powerless, even a sham. So he's undermining their way of life. Yes, and more than that. When Paul announced Jesus as a new king, he would call him Lord or Son of God, the very titles people used to refer to the emperor of Rome. So Paul's message could easily be heard as a threat against the entire political order. Why would anyone join this movement? I mean, it sounds dangerous. Well, people were captivated by the story of Jesus and how his love created communities where all people were treated as equals, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or economic status. These people formed new families that would eat together. They lived sacrificially and took care of their poor. They lived like Jesus actually was the king. Right. And so in every city where Paul announced the message about Jesus, people were being transformed by God's spirit to become new kinds of humans. So Paul would stay in that city and teach them the way of Jesus. And then he would leave for a new city. This was a difficult life. Paul had to endure a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. 
Yeah, and he did so because he believed that his own hardships were a reenactment of Jesus' suffering and death for others. He said it was God's own love that drove him to share the story of Jesus, no matter the cost. After his third road trip, Paul's reputation had grown. He had made many new friends, but had also made many new enemies that he would be wise to avoid. But Paul didn't avoid them. His next stop was Jerusalem, a city full of people who wanted him arrested, even dead. And so why he goes to Jerusalem and what happens when he gets there, that's what the final section of Acts is all about.